0: Good morning. Today's reading is from Mark 15:33 to 39. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a reed, offered him a drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. But Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, This man really was God's son. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Would you remain standing? We're going to pray together. Um, One thing you should know, uh, when Rashad's talking about food, he's not trying to pump it up. Like he really is a foodie and a food snob. (laughs) To To the point where... You know. You know. I called you on it. Our staff is constantly trying to introduce him to new bagels, new pizza. And we're trying to... It's almost like, is he going to like it? Every time we introduce it to him, is he going to like it? And he'll pause, and he'll eat it, and he'll say, it's not bad. And the most classic one is when I asked him... We were talking about... uh, We were eating chicken together. And I said, where's the best chicken you've ever had? And he said... I haven't had it yet. (laughs) So, if you bring a dish, make it count, (laughs) because you will be judged. Thank you, Jesus, that you are here with us, Lord. Jesus, your scripture tells us that you walk in the midst of your church. It also tells us you walk in the midst of our life every day. And if we're honest, we have to say that there's several times over the course of this past week that we've wondered either if you're there or if we've forgotten that you were there. And right now, we have the unique opportunity to be still, to shut out the voices. The voices will still speak inside our heads, voices of shame, doubt, confusion, fear, unbelief, pain, bitterness. And so right now, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would silence those voices and that you would speak more loudly, and that you tune our ears to hear your grace. We pray this in the name of the Father who loves us, and the Son who rose again for us, and the Spirit who now lives inside of us. Amen. Please be seated. It seems uniquely dark today in here. I'm not sure if it is or no. Oh, because these lights are off, no? I could be wrong, I'm not sure. I just can half-see. There we go. There's a little bit right there. Can we give it a little bit more? Bump. 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 No? Okay. All right. Well, we just have a few questions left in our series on the questions of Jesus. And how many questions, for those of you who are listening students, how many questions does Jesus ask in the Gospels? Does anybody remember? Shout it out. A lot, I heard 307, you're close. It's at least 305. Why does Jesus ask so many questions rather than give more advice? Questions, they allow us to actually do the work of understanding what is it that I really believe. Uh, All the time, we're sort of giving advice. We're smoke screening. We have so much information. But you get a good question coming your way. You get a good, like, so why do you feel that way? Well, that'll make you stop and pause. In an age of information, we need good questions. And that's why we're in this sermon series. And the question we come to... Unfortunately, we can probably relate to more than any of the questions of Jesus' life. You know that you're constantly asking yourself questions every day. That's how your thought patterns work, whether you know it or not. They're subconscious. You're asking questions like Do I belong here? Should I have come here? What am I going to eat after this? Am I accepted? Am I worthy of love? Am I able to pull this off? you're constantly asking those questions and those questions are directing your life whether you know it or not. And the question that Jesus asks his father on the cross is probably one that we can relate to more than any of the ones that we have looked at thus far. It's a question right before his death and he asks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a question about rejection and if I took a vote I'm sure that probably almost 100% of us in this room could say that we have felt rejected at one point or another. We probably wouldn't want to point to the particulars about that rejection. Amazing, thank you, (laughs) Gavin. But the longer and the deeper that you know someone, the more painful it is when you feel abandoned and rejected by that person. Let's say it's a primary caregiver in your life. Someone who was meant to care for you. Maybe it was explicit or was implicit. I just did a retreat with a couple of hundred men and hearing one story of a man who said, you know, my dad was there in the house. He just wasn't present. He almost floated through the house like an apparition. And the rest of us were just kind of around. You know what that feels like? It feels like rejection. It's scary as a parent. For me, with children in high school and junior high, do you know why? Because when I'm enmeshed in their lives and I'm playing the role of savior in their lives, I don't want them to experience the pain that comes from being rejected by their peers. And does it happen in junior high? It can be traumatic. Rejection, abandonment, can become trapped in a person's body. Then I feel rejected. I spend my energy trying to protect myself from having that pain again. It comes out in a lot of awkward ways. And because we live in a world where people let us down, we start to assume the same of God too. There's a classic line in the film uh, Fight Club where Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt, says, Our fathers were models for God. If our fathers bailed, what does that tell you about God? Listen to me. You have to consider the possibility that God does not like you. He never wanted you and probably he hates you. Ricky Gervais says something uh, similar to it as well in a recent Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. He tells a joke to Jerry Seinfeld, who's the host, and he says, uh, you know, uh, a Jewish man dies and goes to heaven and he's standing before God and he tells him about the concentration camps and he says, you're kidding. He tells a joke about the concentration camp. And God in this joke says, that's not funny. And Ricky Gervais says, the German man, the Jewish man responds and says, well, I guess you had to be there. And Jerry says, that's a novel in a joke. It really is. It's a power-packed joke. And beneath the joke is this sentiment that if bad things are happening in my life, God must have bailed. And we sense that because if our fathers bailed, or if our friends have bailed, why wouldn't God bail on us? The problem with that belief is that only a belief in a good God can make an event like the Holocaust something that's atrocious or bad. We're actually believing in a good or evil. But maybe at times, if we're honest, we have to admit that I have felt at times that if bad things are happening, maybe God has abandoned me or has bailed. In a recent Barna poll, the number one reason why millennials go to church is to be closer to God, and the number one reason that they leave churches is because they don't find God in the church, or they don't find that connection, closeness to God. The question you and I have to ask ourselves is, does God actually want to be close to me? How can I count on God staying close to me? And so, looking at Jesus' question, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How does that relieve my fear that God might also abandon me? It actually does, and because it's a raw and honest question, it's filled with emotion and it's a question about rejection. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Commentators have pointed out that this is the one time Jesus calls God, God and not Father. There's a distance here. He's feeling distant from his Father. For any of you who have ever felt rejected or abandoned by your Father, the Son of God feels this in this moment. But you'll see in a moment that there's more to it than just rejection. What can we say that Jesus is feeling here? Jesus is feeling a cosmic rejection, and because of that, he can relate to you and you who have felt that your closest loved ones have abandoned you. I was reading the Hebrews in my own Bible time this past week, and chapter 2 says, therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in (coughs) every respect like us his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us when we're being tested. In other words, even the grossest feelings of rejection and abandonment, Jesus went through so that he can relate. So how does Jesus' rejection relate to ours? Well, he's experiencing rejection for the same reasons that you fear rejection and the same reasons that I fear rejection. And those are shame, sin, and separation. First, shame. Jesus' rejection is rooted in shame. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is feeling shame here. I am saying that Jesus' rejection is a shameful one, and it's intended to cause shame. And that's an important distinction because the crucifixion was intended to induce massive amounts of shame. Jesus is an innocent man dying the most gruesome forms of death in the Roman world. It was extremely violent. But beneath that violence is extreme amounts of shame. Being hung on a cross puts you on public display. You'd be suspended above ground probably at eye level with all who are passing by. And so people who pass by you either feel appalled or they feel affirmed. They're reasoning why you should be there and I shouldn't be. In some ways, like it or not, if we're honest, we do something similar when we see someone shooting up or strung out on heroin along Meth Mile. There's a little attorney in our head that goes off and says, "Ah, they must have done something really bad to be there. We self-justify or we self-affirm or we just become appalled and probably for good reasons at times because we are afraid of us being there. That's what the passers-by of Jesus' day would feel as well. It's why they mocked when they passed by because a noble person would be beheaded. The worst of the worst would be crucified because it was reserved for the most shameful of society and in that society, in the ancient culture, your name and your reputation hung on everything. Everything. Everything hung on that. Your sense of self-worth, your significance, your standing in society, all represented or was represented by your name, your, your reputation. It was a social death, the cross, and that's why the crucifixion was the worst kinds of death of all, because it not only killed your body in the most gruesome way, it also stripped you of your dignity in a most shameful way. I don't know if Jesus is feeling shame, but he's certainly experiencing a shameful rejection. We fear being rejected because of our shame as well. We fear coming in here and thinking, man, if these people actually knew what's going on in my life, in my mind, in my past, in my memories, why I'm not making it successful, or you know, I didn't get into this thing, or who I really am, or the questions that float in my mind, they would not want to be sitting next to me. What is shame? Shame is the sense that something is inherently and fundamentally wrong with me. Guilt is about doing something wrong, and we need a guilt meter in our life. Not to live under guilt, but to point us to a place of repentance and receive forgiveness. Shame, whereas, is not that we did something bad, but that I'm bad at the core. And it comes from a belief that I'm basically flawed, inadequate, wrong, bad, unimportant, undeserving, and not good enough. Hey, Kyle, would you mind bringing me a cup of water, please? My throat's a little bit wrecked. And those beliefs, have us for a fact, and those beliefs are usually installed early in our life as a result of not feeling seen or loved or valued or understood, which is why the father who's just existing in the home, passing by like an apparition, can still have that same level of rejection because I'm not feeling seen loved, valued, or understood. Maybe it was direct or indirect, but somehow we attach ourselves to this belief that there's a fundamental flaw in me and it makes me feel unlovable, and that starts to play out in a variety of ways in my life. It makes me addicted to performance or addicted to some addiction. Or it makes me defensive, right? When somebody provides me feedback, thank you, my brother. When somebody provides me feedback, uh, I just smoke scream with anger. Because if I can blow up at you when you're providing me feedback, that means I don't have to actually look in the mirror and see who I really am. Or it makes me petty. Do you know the things that bother me about other people are the very fears that I have about others. And so if it's a work ethic issue or a laziness, there's a deep fear within me that I'm going to get that on me as well. And that's what people saw when they saw the cross. Control is another way. Performance, addiction, defensiveness, pettiness, and control. Jesus is experiencing rejection rooted in shame. I want to tell you, for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, there is no longer now condemnation for you. If you're hearing voices of shame, that's not of God. If you're hearing voices that are saying you're unlovable, at the core, it's you're the problem. At the core, you're the one who is, you know, this is your issue. You, you are bad, not just the things that you've done. That's not of God. Well, why does Jesus, or why does shame exist in the first place? Why do we experience that feeling of being fundamentally flawed? Secondly, Jesus' rejection is rooted in sin. Verse 33, it says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. It's interesting that Christ's birth is announced and accompanied by light. And then when Jesus begins his ministry, Mark, it says that he... Went down to get baptized, and all of a sudden the heavens were torn open, and light came down. And God the Father said, This is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased in Him. I do not reject Him. I receive Him. I dote over Him like a loving Father. Light. And we come to the death of Christ, it's nothing but pure darkness. Now, People have differing perspectives on why it went completely dark from 12 in the afternoon until 3 p.m. on this day of sacrifice, this this day of atonement. Was it an eclipse? Was it a sandstorm? Mark seems to infer that it's a supernatural occurrence, that this was a natural phenomenon, or I'm sorry, not a natural phenomenon. It was a natural event, supernaturally timed. So it goes dark. Dark whether it's an eclipse or whatever it might be, it's a, nat- it's a natural event, supernaturally timed. The question is, why would God bring darkness on the land? Well, you see, darkness in Scripture is a sign of judgment. It showed that something tragic is taking place or about to take place. And you know, when I was in California this past week leading this retreat, there was fires happening throughout there as is happening more often. And we had a rolling, we had a rolling brownout <clears throat> no PG&E uh, no energy energy is cut off at 6.30pm while we're worshipping in, in our session and I try to make light of it like hey guys we've been worshipping so hard we made the lights turn off there's some things you wish you could take back um, it sounded spiritual it just was silly But after we left the session, everything's pitch dark. You go back to your room, you can't even see. There's nothing around. It feels unnatural that you can't even see yourself changing or pack your clothes in the light or whatever it might be. Imagine at noon, pitch dark. Could it be that even hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, the prophet Amos was prophesying about this very occurrence happening? It says in Amos 8, and it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Darkness is an incredible image in Scripture. It was one of the plagues that God sent to Egypt when they wouldn't release his people from slavery and their injustice. It signified God's judgment on Egypt. In fact, when the Bible describes hell, more often than the metaphor of fire, it uses darkness. So what's happening here? At this moment in history, Jesus was taking all of your sin, and all of your shame, and all of the sin of humanity onto himself. And the father is turning his face away from his son, who is at this point becoming the embodiment of sin. The word that is very not popular today. God is a God of light, and in him is no darkness at all, Scripture says. So this darkness points to his judgment on sin that's linked to the cross. You see, your sin any kind of spiritual adultery or idolatry, the worship or the the need to find approval in somewhere, someone other than the love of God as I abide in him, walk with him, and seek to obey him. As a result, it brings separation. It brings spiritual darkness that comes from being out of the presence of God. So about this darkness, John Stott, theologian, says... Into that outer darkness, the Son of God was plunged for us. Our sins blotted out the sunshine of the Father's face. We even dare to say that our sins sent Christ to hell. Not to the hell, Hades, the abode of the dead, but to the hell, Gehenna, the place of punishment to which our sins condemned him before his body died. You see, before we can begin to see that the cross as something done for us We have to see that the cross was something done by us. And so when Jesus is hanging there, exposed in a way that they would often expose the body on these two slabs of wood that are constructed to show shame, naked and Completely whipped and bloodied and almost incoherent to be even seen as a human. The reason he's there when you look at the ugliness of it is to see the ugliness and the ugly parts of our own covetousness and longings apart from the love of God. He's being rejected in a shameful way for the sin of that you and I have committed. And yet, the words out of his mouth, they're not words of bitterness. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, when you're wound, and you're all gonna get wounded, the sacred wound is a part of sanctification process. In other words, becoming more like Jesus is to be wounded in this life. And the primary essence of spiritual growth is learning to know what to do with your pain. Because unless you transform your pain or learn to transform it, you will transmit it in unhealthy ways to others around you. You with me? So Jesus hanging on the cross, he shouts out forgiveness and when I'm wounded, I wanna shout out justice. My wounds become sin in my life when those wounds, when they turn into wrath. When the bad done to me turns into bitterness or roots of bitterness, now I'm the one who has to ask for forgiveness, otherwise my body will trap those emotions and feelings of unforgiveness for a long, long time until I am delivered from the bitter root that lives inside of me. And Jesus is hanging on a cross to forgive the one who's wounded and offended you and me. And it's hella painful. Maybe we'll edit that out of the tape later. Jesus' rejection is rooted in sin, our individual sin and our social sin. He's being rejected right here and now. And in that moment of darkness, he cries out his question, the question that gives us a clue as to whether or not we can be confident that God will stay close to us, that God won't abandon us, that God won't reject me for my own shame and my own sin. In 34, he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, I love the Bible for its honesty. Thirdly, Jesus' rejection is rooted in separation, or it leads to separation, whichever is more grammatically correct. First, It's a separation between those that he loves and himself. People are walking by him. They're minimizing his pain. Because when he cries out, Eli, Eli, in the Hebrew, my God, my God, it sounds like he's saying, Elijah, Elijah. And says, when some of those standing near him heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And some ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on the staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink now I'll leave him alone, they said. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. See, it was believed that Elijah would come at the end of time. So with this commotion, this circus-like melee that's happening, they're like, wait, he's saying Eli, Eli, Eli. It sounds like Elijah. Give him some sour wine, and let's see if Elijah comes down. Let's see what happens here. And then they say the phrase, and then leave him alone. Rejection, man. Rejection from the people that he loves. What they don't know is that they're actually fulfilling Psalm 69, written a thousand years before his death by David. You know my shame, scorn, and disgrace, David says. You see all that my enemies are doing. Their insults have broken my heart, and I am in despair. If only one person would show some pity, if only one would turn and comfort me, but instead they give me poison for food. They give me sour wine for my thirst. But secondly, Jesus isn't just experiencing rejection from people that he loves. He's experiencing rejection from the God and Father that he loves and whom has only showed him love from eternity past and his life until now for 33 years. And when Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's both feeling something and he's fulfilling something. He's feeling the pain of separation and rejection from his father and here we realize Jesus prayed in the garden for another way because he didn't want to feel this rejection. It wasn't so much to escape the physical pain although that was violently excruciating. I need another drink of water real quick. It was to avoid the relational pain, which was devastating. Some of you right now, you know, if I was to say, where have you felt rejection in your life? You can feel it in your body, you have a sense, oh man, it still hurts. The longer you know someone and trust someone and then they let you down, the more painful it is. It's in this moment of pain and separation that his suffering becomes unbearable. He cries out, Why have you forsaken me? But it wasn't just that he's feeling something. The point of this is more than that, it's actually that he's fulfilling something. See, in this question, Jesus is quoting the first lines from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by David also, who in his own time of pain, it was a psalm of lament from God's son or servant who's suffering deep injustice. And in that injustice, he cries out, why have you forsaken me? And he goes through this whole litany of his own suffering. Again, the Bible's so honest. But what David could not have known, though, is how his song would find its fullest meaning in the suffering of Jesus. And although it was written hundreds of years before the suffering of Jesus, it portrays what Jesus endures in remarkable ways. And at the very end of Psalm 22, it ends with vindication. There's restoration for the people of God. And when Jesus is suffering, he's accomplishing, he's fulfilling something for you and me. That the cross is really the only way that you can be assured of God's love. Our sense sent him to the cross but love kept him on the cross, even when others were taunting him to come down if you're the Messiah. He could have just come down and left us to our fate, showed his, his muscle. But it was love that kept him there for you and me. Jesus Christ pursued you and me to the anguish of the cross where he took upon himself our abandonment and our fear of rejection. He took our most fearful question, will you leave me when I need you most? Many of us wonder, does God care? Why is he allowing this to happen or that to happen? And if ever there was an answer, if God at least cares, if he's at least willing to be close to you, (laughs) this is it. This is it. Listen to what John Stott again in his book, The Cross of Christ, says. Please follow along. I'm going to read rapidly through. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In a real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, his arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth. A remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I had to turn away. And in my imagination, I've had to turn instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry, and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That's the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered a world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. And he says, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. On that day, when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was so that when you now cry out, My God, my God, will you forsaken me? You'll never be forsaken. That's what Jesus promises his disciples. And either he's a liar or he's not. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So therefore, this is the point. Jesus' rejection reveals God's devotion, even in times of difficulty. Jesus' rejection reveals that God is devoted to you, he wants to be close to you, he's committed to closeness to you, to drawing you near to him, even in days of difficulty. But how can I know whether or not I'm a person whose God is devoted to, or worthy of being devoted to? In other words, am I worthy? God is devoted to those who, one, pass through the curtain, and two, say the confession. What do I mean by pass through the curtain? Well, there's this odd line in verse 37. It says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's the significance? Most of you realize that during the lifetime of Jesus, the holy temple in Jerusalem was the center of Jewish religious life. The temple was the sacred space where animal sacrifices would be slaughtered and worship could happen according to the law of Moses. So in the book of Hebrews, for example, it tells us that the temple veil kept the commoners out. It separated the holy of holies where the earthly place of God's presence would rest and meet with man. A high priest was permitted to pass beyond this veil one time of year. He would go into that Holy of Holies, past that veil, which was 60 feet high, four feet thick. Tradition has it that it was even soundproof, this massive veil, the kind that I want by my front door during wintertime so snow doesn't get in. The size and thickness, apparently you haven't lived through winter here yet, the size and thickness of the veil makes the tearing of the veil so much more monumental. I have a friend who went to Disneyland, the child of a famous friend, And this child can no longer go to Disneyland again because when she went, she had a pass behind the scenes to go to Walt Disney's apartment on the grounds, to go to Walt Disney's office to see behind Disney. Imagine being in the temple, you're a child, you know that that veil is where God meets with only the strictest and holiest high priests. it's where the sacrifice of animals is consumed, it's where all the forgiveness happens, it's mysterious, it's scary, then all of a sudden you see this giant veil being torn from the top as though a giant strong man is tearing a phone book in half, and you begin to see it rip. <laughs> And all of a sudden, you can see in. And it's not just Disneyland. It's the holy place where God dwells. And the priest is there like, oh, my gosh. What does this communicate? That God's presence is spilling out into the world. Access to God is now open to everyone, everywhere, Jew and Gentile, male, female, everyone in between. It's open to all. And Hebrews tells us that the veil was a symbol of Jesus, his body. When his flesh was torn, that thing was torn. He tells us that he's the only way to pass into God's presence is through him. And not only is he the veil, is he the temple, he is also the high priest making intercession for you. He's also the sacrifice on the altar washing you of all your sin and shame and he cried out with a loud voice in that moment it is finished and now you can rest have you passed through that curtain it's you're invited it's open to all how do you do that you say the confession All of a sudden, this Roman centurion, he's there at the cross, and he's looking at this whole event happen. This Roman soldier who is attributed allegiance to Caesar and will be put to death if he has allegiance to any other king. He now looks at Jesus and sees how he dies, and he says, surely this man was the son of God and he falls to his knees, and I imagine him being sprayed with the blood and water that's flowing from the side of Emmanuel, God with us. Have you made that confession? It's simply the confession of falling on your knees and saying, this is the son of God. There is no other like him. And I yield my life to you, and all my power, and all the ways that I've tried to seek Importance in the world and acceptance because I'm afraid to be rejected. I want to be received by you now. This is the Son of God. And through that confession, you now become a son or a daughter of God. You become a son or a daughter through adoption, you become an heir of all of His righteousness. If you don't believe me, read your Bible. Hebrews now says, chapter 10, we have confidence to enter that most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Andre Agassi's memoir, Open, is easily one of my favorite biographies. Now, I know that this is my second tennis reference in like a month, but trust me, I know nothing about tennis. But this memoir transcends tennis because it's not just a typical story of an athlete with highs and lows, it's actually a vulnerable story about a man who has experienced incredible pain and rejection from his dad. It's a spiritual journey, and towards the center part of his life, he meets a pastor in Las Vegas, and one night they go for a drive down Las Vegas Strip, and Agassiz, in his Corvette, as you for sure would. And Agassiz is venting about his father, how he was never there, never near to him, never there for him. And the pastor looks over to him and he says, Andre, do you realize that God is nothing like your father? Agassiz says, I almost crashed my Corvette. I turned and looked and I pulled over and I said, say it again. And he said, God is nothing like your father. And I said, okay, good. Say it again, but slower, word for word. And he said, he said it again, word for word. And I said, say it again, and he said it again. Say it again, and he said it again. The reason why he was so shocked is that he couldn't believe that God the Father would desire to draw near to him. And what we see in this story is that Jesus' rejection reveals God's devotion to you. Even in times of difficulty. They were made strong, but thou made yourself weak for us. They rode, but you stumbled to a cross. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. And with this question, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can confidently now say, God.